like for you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. And I want to begin reading at verse 10 from Philippians, chapter 4. I'll read verses 10 through 13. I love this book. It's the only book in the New Testament that does not have the word sin in it. It rings with joy, and I like it. And I want to begin reading at verse 10 of the fourth chapter. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. A great part of the history of the human race has been its search of a secret, man's desire to know, man's quest for knowledge. Borum has a book entitled The Other Side of the Hill, and he says that man's oldest question is, what lies on the other side of the hill? From the discovery of the cure, of Jenner's discovery of, uh, for the cure for smallpox, to Pasteur's understanding of the germ, from the salt vaccine to nuclear explosions. All of these mark man's quest to unlock the mysteries that are locked up in the boxes of the universe. But do you know what man desires to know above everything else? He craves the secret of contentment. To know how to be content in an age of dissatisfaction and despair, man's great desire is to know how to be happy, to know how to be content. I agree with Paul Rees when he said that if we achieve this goal of a healthy contentment, it would be a boon if possessed that would lead our society to a, a condition approximating paradise. Man's great desire is to know how to be content. And so from a Roman cell comes the shout, I have learned what man has desired to know. I have found the secret. I have learned the secret that man craves to know. That is, the secret of contentment. Now the Greek word for content means without uh, outside circumstances or without outside assistance. So what Paul is saying is this, I need nothing else to fill up my life. I need nothing else to make me happy. I have learned everything I need to be happy. What do you need to make you happy? If sometime today you took a piece of paper and you wrote on this piece of paper these words, I would be contented if what would you fill in the blank? 
I mean, what do you really need to be contented? There is a, an important word that stands out in the, words of these, uh, in the words of this text. And I was reading this not long ago, and I was thinking, boy, to be content. Man, wouldn't that be great to just be contented for the rest of one's life? And then all of a sudden, that word just leaped out at me. It's one of those kinds of things that kind of makes you slap your head and say, oh, well, that's the catch, isn't it? It's the word learned. Well, you see, contentment is not something that comes automatically. It's not the result of some cataclysmic experience that you have at an altar where you come down to the altar and you pray and you get your heart right with God and He just zaps you with contentment and you get up and you leave that place and you're contented for the rest of your life. It just doesn't work that way. It's, a, it's something that you learn. It's a process by which you learn, and it involves two things. It involves time, and it involves experience. So that what Paul is saying is that God has led me along in time through experiences that have taught me how to be content. The world tells us one way to be contented, and God tells us another way to be contented. The world says that the way you be, are contented is by increasing your possessions... And the way God says that you find contentment is by decreasing your desires. Now, I didn't say eliminating your desires, but decreasing them so that God in time moves us through experiences that, de that teach us a balance between an outer attachment to things and an inner detachment from them. I heard that Socrates would walk through the marketplace and the bazaars of Athens asking this question, can you tell me where I can buy those things that are really necessary for life? What Paul is saying is, God in time has brought me through experiences and has weaned me from those things that are really not necessary for life. And he has taught me that the one great desire that man should have is his desire for Jesus, so that he weans me from everything else, so that my ultimate desire, my great desire, is just for Jesus. And what Paul is saying, really, seems to me, is this. I have learned that Jesus is all I need to be happy. Did you know that he is the only thing that you can desire, that you can have everything you want? Now, you may, not, you may desire more money and, and, and not have more money. You may desire more friends and not be more popular. In fact, popularity is a, is, a, is a fleeting thing. You may not have more health. It may be diminishing rather than, than increasing. But Jesus is the one thing or person you can have all you want. You can have all of Jesus that you want. And so Paul is saying, I have learned through the process of time and experience to desire Jesus more than anything else. And that's the secret of contentment. Now what you might be asking is this. What are these experiences through which God leads us to contentment so I can know when it's happening to me? Well, the text describes them. Paul says that God teaches us through unfair circumstances. Now, while he's writing this epistle, he is in prison. Now, why is he in prison? For preaching the gospel. That's why he's in prison. Now, I ask you, is that fair? Here is a man who preaches the gospel, 
And what it gets him is a prison cell. I mean, here is a man who is faithful to God, and what it gets him is an unfair circumstance. He's in prison. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. How do you react to unfair circumstances? I mean, are you one of those who says, now I've been faithful to God, that ought to get me something. I mean, that ought to earn some... Is, doesn't that mean anything, that I've been faithful to God all these years? Doesn't that gain me some points with God? And some of us may look upon faithfulness to God as a kind of a vaccination against hardship. And so when unfast circumstances come, we wonder, what has happened? I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it earn us something to be faithful to God? That's what the psalmist struggled with. He said, people mock me and they mock God. He said, I looked around, I saw wicked people and they were flaunting their wickedness. They were not just evil, they were arrogantly wicked and flaunting their wickedness and they were prospering, growing fat in their prosperity while I was just barely getting by. And then he made this statement. He said, in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocency. You know what he was saying? He said, I've been faithful to God all my life, and where has it gotten me? In vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocency. How do you react to unfair circumstances? I mean, when your husband mistreats you and you lose your business and life deals you a bad hand, how did Jesus respond to unfair circumstances? Have you ever read the book, 1 Peter? You need to get acquainted with this book because I'm going to predict, predict that the longer you live the Christian life, the more relevant this book is going to be to your life. And what it deals with in 1 Peter is, we could write it as a kind of a subtitle to the book, we could write, How to Suffer Correctly. I want to read you something. It says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, if then you suffer patiently? But what if you do what is right and suffer for it? If you patiently endure this, this finds favor with God. For you have been called to this purpose. What purpose? To suffer correctly unfair circumstances. For you have been called for suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I've seen life's unfair circumstances. When you pastor for almost 30 years, you go where the hurt is. And I have stood beside hurt in hospital halls and in funeral homes. And I have watched homes burn and businesses fail and marriages dissolve. And I have seen people give up through unfair circumstances, ones they love the most in life, and I have heard them cry, and I have seen it in their faces, why me, why this? And Paul says, paradoxically, God teaches me how to be content through unfair circumstances. It is through the unfair circumstance that I learn to desire Him above everyone else. There is a second way that God teaches us, and that is through unfaithful companions. Now, there is only one thing that hurts worse than an unfair circumstance, and that's an unfaithful companion. And that's what chapter 1 is about. 
For Paul is in prison, and there he finds out who his friends are. He finds out that he has a lot of fair-weather friends. In fact, when he, when he was thrown in prison, most of them forsook him, turned their back on him, and rejected him. And some were even using his imprisonment to, 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 uh, for their own selfish advancement. Unfair, uh, unfaithful companions. Job lost his friends too. And so they all came, four of them, and they sat down in the front of Job and they stared at him. Now that must have been a real blessing to have it, you know, his friends come and just spend days staring at him, you know, never saying a word. And after a few days, they begin to accuse him and to judge him. And they said, you're a terrible sinner and you need to repent. And if you repent, perhaps God won't cause you to suffer any longer. And Job said, the suffering was so great, even my friends scourged me. And what Paul is saying from a Roman prison is this, I have experienced the scourging of unfaithful friends, and I have found in that experience that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. There is a third way that God teaches us, and that is through unexpected complications. I like verse 13. We've quoted that since our childhood. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, I like the J.B. Phillips translation of that better. J.B. Phillips translation is this. I am ready for anything that comes in life. I'm ready for every surprise. Now there's some folks who don't like surprises. I learned about the third year of our marriage that if I put a package under the tree with Margaret's name on it, she's going to peek at that package. In fact, she's going to peek at everybody's package. I mean, at hers, you know, included. And the reason why she said that she did that was, she said, I don't like surprises. I've never been able to figure out that if it's a surprise when you open it up on December the 25th, why wouldn't it be a surprise when you peeked at it on December the 20th? I've never been able to figure that out. But, but there are some folks who, who just don't like surprises. And so for centuries, man has tried to protect himself against the unexpected. And every generation has had its prophet and its crystal gazers and its palm readers and its fortune tellers. All of these trying to be able to predict the future so we can get ready for it. And it doesn't matter how many times these predictors are wrong. They always have a clientele. You ever notice that? Have you read any of these predictions about 1987? I mean, I was reading some of them in the Dallas Morning News the other day, and I thought, this is, is this for real? I mean, this has got to be a joke. It doesn't ha matter how many times these predictors are, are wrong, they always have a clientele. We always are wanting to be able to predict the unpredictable. So every morning, the first thing some of you do is grab your newspaper, turn to the astrology section so you can find out what your day is going to be like. And some folks use science as a way of predicting the future, and we can't stand surprises. And so we know whether it's going to be a boy or a girl before the baby's born. And we've developed a new science called, with the impossible name, futurology, adding to the hope that one day we'll put aside the unexpected and be able to predict everything. Even the Bible has been misused as a quarry for predicting the future. Let me say parenthetically that this Bible is not a code book 
to give some mysterious predictions about what's going to happen to this world. Do we really think that we're going to ever be able to put aside the unexpected? I mean, when you go to bed at night, assured by the weatherman with his charts and radar screens that the next day is going to be warm and sunny, do you really believe he knows what he's talking about? Do you really believe that? There are no ironclad rules that govern the future except the will of God. And the message of this book is that you cannot predict tomorrow... You cannot boast, we're not even to boast of tomorrow. You cannot understand what lies beyond this moment, really. The message of this Bible is that the primary character itself was the most unpredictable man who's ever lived. So when he arrived on the scene, he walked away from the so-called righteous and caroused with the so-called sinners. That was a surprise. And when the blind man called out to him, he asked, What do you want? And when the paralytic was let down into his presence, the first thing Jesus said was, Thy sin be forgiven thee. When he was expected to preach sermons, he told funny stories. When he was expected to be a strong comforter at a friend's funeral, he wept. When he was expected to be fearful and trembling before Pilate, he stood with courage and stared into the eyes of Pilate until he turned away in embarrassment. And what could be a greater surprise than the Messiah's death unless it would be His resurrection? The message of this book is that you cannot predict the unpredictable. You don't have to know what lies beyond tomorrow. What you need to know is who controls it and who possesses it. That's the problem with so much of our faith. It's attached to all these presuppositions. We just know we've got God figured out. If I do this, God will do that. If I ask this, God will answer that. And our faith is tied to these presuppositions because we don't want the unexpected. And the message of this text is that you can trust in God for the future. I cannot know why suddenly the storm so fiercely rages around me in its wrath, but this I know God watches all my path and I can trust. I may not draw aside the mystic veil that hides the unknown future from my eyes, nor know if for me waits the dark or the light, but I can trust. I have no power to look across the tide and see while here the, the, the city that lies beyond the river, but this I know, I am God's forever, so I can trust. And so what Paul is saying is this, that God doesn't eliminate the unexpected, but He gives me confidence in the one who controls the future. Now you say, okay... Well, that, those are the steps through which God leads us. What is the secret that everyone wants to know? What is the secret of contentment? Well, I'm going to give you the answer. The secret of contentment in life is knowing that your sufficiency is of the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I want you to underline the word all and know that it is an emphatic word in the emphatic position. As a matter of fact, in the Greek text, the word all comes at the first of the sentence. And the literal translation of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the literal translation is this, "All all things I have strength for. 
because he wants us to put the all things in the emphatic position to know that the emphasis is on the all things. Now that's not good English, but it's a tremendous translation from the Greek. And what it says is this, you name it, I'm ready for it. All things in life I am strong for. And it is the shout of a boundless confidence in the availability of the living Christ as an interior source of power. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this, because Jesus Christ lives in me for everything I'm preparing. And it's a great, there's a great contrast there in that shout of adequacy in our confessions of inadequacy. I can't. I can't control these, these lustful thoughts. I can't control my temper. I can't love my enemy. I can't forgive him. I can't live a holy life. I can't take a Sunday school class. I can't tithe. I can't visit. I can't witness. I can't pray in public. And the list goes on and on and on. And the answer to that inadequacy is not blowing on our hands and increasing our effort. It is attaching ourselves to the adequate one. I need to say that again. Adequacy for all things is attaching yourself to the adequate one. And it is a boundless confidence here. There is a boundless confidence here that what Jesus was when in his visible life on earth, he still is. What a discovery. What a discovery that what Jesus was in his visible life, he still is. That this other Jesus who has come in the person of the Holy Spirit indwells you so that everything Jesus was, he still is. And He's omnipresent so that you have Him living in you who was and is and who is to come. What a revelation. Well, you see, we all understand in the crisis that there is a difference between some little thought in the back of our head or some conviction we've always lived by and the presence of a friend we love and with whom we commune with a communion deeper than words. We all know the difference in that. In other words, Paul is saying now when the crisis comes in life, it's not a matter of calling to your memory some, some motto you learned. It's not a matter of relying on some conviction you've developed. It's, it's drawing upon the presence of the adequate one and that's intimate and personal and profoundly encouraging. So you say, I can't love him. That's okay, Jesus can. I can't forgive. That's all right, Jesus can. And I attach myself and I avail myself of the adequate one. And, and, and what Paul is saying is, that here is the secret that everybody longs to know how to be content in life. And I've learned it through experiences that I have in Jesus Christ sufficiency for everything. Now that's something to get, get worked up about and excited. Dr. Edgar Dillard tells about meeting... John Lowe, in 1898, that name will not mean a thing to anybody, John Lowe, but he was one of the first mission appointees to China. And Edgar Dillard met him one night at an associational meeting 
a Baptist meeting just before he left to go to China. And he describes John Lowe like this. It's beautiful. He said, He was as straight as a shingle, as handsome as a polis, and as happy as an angel. And Edgar Dillard asked John Lowe's question about his ask, ask him a question about his, his his appointment to China. And he got so excited. He said he just was ex- flashing with excitement. This is what John Lowe said. He said, Dr. Dillard, I would rather be with God in China today than to be with God in heaven tomorrow. Seven years later, Edgar Dillard saw John Lowe again. He was home on furlough from China. And he asked this question. He said, what did you see in China, the greatest thing you saw in China? And he lit up like a, like a light, like the sun. And he said, Dr. Dillard, the day we docked in China, I saw as clearly as I see you, Jesus welcoming me to the Orient. Now, now something like that happened to me the first day I pulled into Durant. Now, don't get excited and run out and say that the preacher saw the Lord like he sees it. I didn't see that kind of thing. But I remember preceding the moving van to, to, to Durant, Oklahoma, and I remember pulling into this town with an overwhelming sense of the presence of the Lord as though He welcomed me here. Now, I don't, I don't know seven years ago all that I would go through. I might have headed, in a, headed south. You know. I don't know all that was, you, know, it, you, you experience in joy and in sorrow, all that I would experience here. I didn't even think about that. What I was thinking about was this overwhelming sense that the Lord was here inviting me and welcoming me here. Oh, no, no, no. Uh-uh. And I, I, I don't know what lies beyond this day, and this is a new year. I don't know what lies beyond it. Neither do you. But I can promise you that sense of His presence who is supremely and profoundly adequate for all things. He's the one we should applaud. And so B.H. Carroll, who founded Southwestern Seminary at the day of his redemption, said this, Write thy name of love upon my hands, that they may work for thee. Write my na- thy name of love upon my feet, that they may walk for thee. Write thy name of love upon my mind, that it may think for thee. Write thy name of love upon my lips, that they may speak for thee. Write thy name of love across my life, for it is totally thine. And if there is anyone here this morning who would make that same kind of prayer, write thy name of love upon my life, for it is totally thine. You have just found the secret of contentment. You have just learned what it means to be content. Let's pray together. We thank you that we do not stand alone, that there is beside us and within us the living God present in the person of the Holy Spirit, 
who continually pours his resource of life into us who believe. All things I am strong for because of him. And I pray that today that we will be detached from a worldly attachment and attached to the adequate one who is indeed sufficient. For I pray in his name and for his sake. Now there are three kinds of invitations at the end of every evangelical service. One invitation is for those who have never first time committed their heart and life and simple faith in the saving experience, the salvation experience. It is as simple as trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. It is turning from the life you have lived to Him and trusting Him. The second invitation is for those of us who need to attach ourselves more totally, fully to Him. And a part of that involves a repentance from that which stands between us to a surrender of one's life to Him. We call it rededication or whatever. And then the invitation to... to, to to be a part of a Christian fellowship, the church, to come and unite with the fellows, fellow believers in, in, in transferring your life to this fellowship by, by statement or whatever. We'll share that with you as you come. What we invite you to do, not harass. Our invitations are not to intimidate or harass, but just give an opportunity for people to do what God wants them to do. So we invite you to do it while we stand. While our choir sings.